Father, we are so blessed to be here today, and Father, we, we pray for those uh, who have been affected by this flood, and uh, Lord, uh, we just uh, know you're going to provide for, the, for your church and your children, and Lord, just show us where we can be of help and where we can help those in need, and uh, Lord, it's a great time for us to, to go out and reach out to this community, so just, so just give us those opportunities and show us where we can help, Lord. Father, uh, we just, again, thank you for your word and, and all we're learning through your word uh, as we go uh, book by book and verse by verse, and especially what we're learning here in Second Peter, Lord, and as you give us these warnings about false teachers and uh, false Christians, and Lord, uh, it's kind of a twofold warning. It's, you're, you're warning us to, to be careful about uh, what we listen to, and, and uh, you're also warning us uh, to be uh, sure about our own salvation, Lord, to make sure that we're not uh, false believers. Father, uh, uh, I, I, this is a passage uh, that I don't want to use to scare people or to make people doubt their faith, but, but uh, just to make us aware of, of, uh, of, of those that are, are among us that aren't true believers, and Lord, also to... to just be so grateful for what you've done for us because all of us, Lord, at one time were, were lost and dying and, and without hope. And, Lord, you've given us such great hope through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I just ask you to, to teach us what you would have us to learn in this passage today by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles today, turn to the book of Second Peter towards the end of the New Testament, the book of 2 Peter, and we'll look at a few verses in chapter number 2 today, 2 Peter chapter number 2. I don't know about y'all, but one of my favorite expositors was, is a guy named J. Vernon McGee. Some of you might have uh, listened, might, you, you still can listen to him on the radio, but he used to love to say that uh, you could take a person, or you could take a pig, and you could take that pig, and you can put a nice suit on him, a tie and a white shirt and some dress shoes, and you could bring him to church, and he'd sit there with you. If he was trained, he'd sit there with you. He might honk a little bit, but, but uh, he'd be pretty quiet, and, and uh, he would fit right in. But then you'd take that pig home, and you would let him loose, and he would run straight to the pig's sty, straight to the slop, and he'd be eating the slop. Well, Peter's been warning us about false teachers and false Christians in, in this epistle that we're looking at here in 2 Peter. And a lot of these people that he's referring to are like pigs in suits. I mean, they're, they're dressed up. and we, we don't dress up very much here at Calvary. In fact, I'm the most dressed person up here. We don't dress up much here at Calvary Chapel, but uh, we dress up a little bit and we... we uh, and he's referring to believers, who, I mean, to Christians, so-called Christians who come to church and they dress like Christians, they act like Christians, they talk like Christians, and a lot of them teach like Christians, but they're really nothing more than pigs in a suit. And we should be able to spot them. We shouldn't have any, we shouldn't have any trouble spotting them. You, you should, if, listen to me, if you're not a born-again believer, you shouldn't have any trouble figuring out that you're not a born-again believer. And if you are a born-again believer, you shouldn't have any trouble figuring out that you are a born-again believer. 
But there are a lot of people who deceive themselves. And that's what Peter's warning us about here in this text. And so, again, we shouldn't have any trouble figuring them out. Go, go, go back to verse number 3 of chapter number 2. First of all, he says, by covetousness, they will exploit you. In other words, the reason that they're in the ministry is because of their covetousness. They want things. They love things. I said a couple of weeks ago, if you see a pastor who's running around driving a Rolls Royce and he has his own private jet and he's living in a mansion, I've got news for you. More than likely, he's a false prophet and you shouldn't have anything to do with him. You certainly shouldn't be sending them any money. They're going to exploit you. And you can say that really for any Christian. Any Christian that loves money might very well be a pig in a suit. They might not really be a Christian at all because what does the Bible say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Now, it doesn't say that money's evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus said this over in Matthew chapter 6. He says, no man can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to, to one and despise the other. In other words, you cannot serve God and money too. You can't do it. Now, does that mean we're not to enjoy the fruit of our labor? We're not to enjoy the money that we make when we work? No. I mean, the Bible tells us over in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's put it like this. He says, he says enjoy your, your work. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. It is a gift from God. And so God intends for us to have money. He intends for us to enjoy our money, but we're not to love money. If we love money... There is something wrong with us. When you see a teacher that loves money and he's after money more than anything else, stay as far away from him as you can. And if you call yourself a Christian and you still love money, you, better, you might very well be a fake Christian. You might not be a real Christian at all. Now, again, it's okay to enjoy your money, but... The way you can tell a person who loves money, let me, let me put it this way. They will do anything to get that money. They will exploit people. They will step all over people. They will steal from people. They will steal from friends. They will lie to people. They will do anything to get money. They will throw away anything uh, that amounts to morality in order to make money. And so when, if, if that's a person's case, then more than likely they're not a real believer. Now, Peter shows us some other ways to spot these fake Christians, beginning in verse number 10. Look, look down at verse number 10. He says, and this is picking up in the middle of a sentence because we had looked at verses uh, 1 through 9, but we'll pick up there anyway. We can, we can figure out what he's trying to tell us here. Look at verse number 10. And he says, especially those who walk according to the flesh. Now, the, when the Bible speaks of the flesh, what is the Bible speaking of? It's speaking of the fallen nature. You know, I used to have people that argue with me about whether or not the Bible speaks of a fallen nature. The Bible does speak of a fallen nature. It doesn't say the, a, a, a sinful nature, a sin nature. The Bible doesn't say sin nature, but it speaks of the flesh. Your flesh is your fallen nature. Listen to what he says here. He says, they, 
and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. In other words, they have an unclean nature. They have a fallen nature. It is a sinful nature. Now, we were all born with that fallen nature. We were all born with the sin nature. And we have a choice to either walk by the flesh or walk by the spirit. Paul tells us over in Romans that if we're children of God, how do we walk? We put to death the deeds of the flesh, and we walk by the Spirit. Now, there's a war going on, though, in there. There's a war between our flesh, and there's a war between our spirit. Because when you get saved, you don't re- you, your nature gets redeemed, and you no longer have a sin nature, but you still have a corrupt flesh. And when you see someone who walks continuously in the flesh, more than likely they aren't a real believer. They're a pig in a suit. And so he says here that uh, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and they despise authority. In other words, they see themselves as the authority. They despise authority. They despise the authority of God. They despise despise the authority of governmental uh, rulers, politicians. They despise that authority. Now, I despise politicians to some degree, but God has set those authorities over us. Where do all authorities come from, the Bible tells us? In Romans chapter 13, they all come from God. God, there's not any authority that doesn't come from God. All authorities come from God. And when we despise authority, when we despise uh, the authority of the people who rule over us, we're despising the authority of God. And so that's one way you can kind of test whether or not you're a true believer. Do you despise the authority that, that God places over us? And then he says they're presumptuous. They're presumptuous and they're self will What's he mean by their presumptions? He means that they, they're, they're, they're arrogant. They're full of pride. They presume on God. They, they're the people who name it and claim it. In other words, they presume that whatever they want, God is required to give them, that God lives just to meet their needs. I heard a lady a while back, a wife of one of these so-called America's pastors, who said that God lives to meet your needs. That, that, that's pretty audacious, isn't it? To say that that's the reason that God lives. God has lived forever. Before, a million years before uh, we existed, God was there. So God was living a long time before he ever brought us on the scene. Now God certainly loves his children and wants to meet their needs, but, but it's audacious to say, okay, Lord, uh, this is what I want you to do, and I want you to bless it. And that's why he says here they're self-willed. They know nothing about the principle that, that uh, the Lord speaks of in Proverbs chapter 3 where he says, Trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge the Lord, and he will guide your paths. So in anything we do, we're to look, seek the will of God, but they're self-willed. They decide what they want and what they want to do, and then they ask the Lord to bless that. And that's what it means to be self-willed. And then he goes on and, and uh, uh, look, at the, look at the last part of verse t- number 10. He says, they are not afraid 
to speak evil of dignitaries. Literally, they're glorious ones. That's the literal translation. Who's he speaking of when he speaks of glorious ones? He's speaking of the angels. In other words, they're, they're not afraid to speak evil of angels. They act as if they have more authority than angels. Uh, I mean, and you, you talk about being audacious. When you think you have more power than the angels have, that's, that's pretty, pretty prideful, and, and uh, that's a good sign that you're, you're dealing with a false teacher or a false Christian. He says they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might. Are we greater than the angels? No. One angel, you go over to, to 2 Kings, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. Try that. You can't do that. I mean, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. And, and so, it, so we don't have that kind of power. They are greater in power and might than us. I don't need to tell you that. You know that. And, and, and then it says, do not, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. In other words, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against other angels before the Lord. The NASB in that first, last part of verse number 10 translates it like this. It says, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. When you, if, if an angel was to appear in this room right now, in all of his glory, I will tell you right now, let me tell you what you would do. You would fall on your face and you would tremble. You would tremble. But these guys aren't afraid of angels. The reason they aren't afraid of angels and the reason they revive so-called evil angels is because they are so audacious to think that, audacious to believe that they have the pow more power than these spiritual authorities. So they're full of pride. Now, the Bible does say that one day we will judge angels. One day we will rule over angels. But for now, we are created a little lower than the angels. So we don't have the power to revile angels. But we are one day going to be greater, greater than the angels. The Bible does say that. You go over to the book of Acts, and you do see cases where demons are cast out of people. You see it in the Gospels. Of course, Jesus did it in the Gospels. The disciples tried. They couldn't do it. But over in Acts, you do see people being Demons being cast out of people. And the Bible does say that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. So we do have some power over angelic beings. But where does that power come from? It comes from the Lord. And when I, you know, I hear these, these so-called evangelists, so-called prophets, and they start talking about how they're going to bind the devil and they're going to bind the, his demons and, and they do a little dance and they're going to trample all over Satan. They're not going to trample all over Satan. They're not going to bind Satan. They're not going to bind demons. You can't bind Satan. You can't bind demons. When is Satan going to be bound? He's going to be bound in the millennium. He's going to be bound for a thousand years, and then he's going to be let loose, and there's going to be one last rebellion at the end of the, the, the millennium, and then he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. But for now, 
we can't bind Satan. We can't bind demons. Now, I certainly believe if you've got the power through the Lord, demons can be cast out of people, but those demons are going to just go somewhere else, and if you don't have the power to keep them out, they're going to come right back. In fact, the Bible says they'll come back sevenfold. And so, yeah, we have some power, but it's, it's, you have to be pretty audacious to think that you have more power than Satan, that you have more power than the demons. When we get over to the little book of Jude, uh, Jude's going to talk about the fact that even the archangel angel Michael, when he faced Satan, was very careful about what he had to say with him. But I hear these false prophets, and it's like, man, I got power, I've got power, all this power over Satan. Well, if you have any power over Satan, it's not coming from you, it's coming from the Lord. All right, now, look at verse number 12. He says, but these are like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed. Speaking, they speak evil of things that they do not understand. In other words, you, none of us understand the spiritual world. None of us knows what's going on in the spiritual world. And, and to speak as if we know is, is prideful because we don't know. We don't see the things that are going on around us in the spiritual world. We don't have the power over the spiritual world. We, we have some power because that power comes from the Lord, but, but we don't understand how that world works. But yet, these people are like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, and they speak evil of things they do not understand, and yet they will utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, it's as if these people have been bitten with pride and arrogance. And who have they been bitten by? They've been bitten by Satan. And they're like rabid dogs. And what do you do with a rabid dog? You catch that dog and you destroy it. And so it says here that they'll be, they're like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. They speak of evil of things they don't understand. And they're, what's, gonna, what's their fate? They will utterly perish. They will perish in hell in their own Corruption and their own sin, because their sin will never be dealt with. And then verse number 13, and they will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in daytime. You know, you're really in bad shape when you're carousing in the daytime. It's bad enough to carouse at night. But even in my worst state, when I used to carouse at night, you know, I kind of, in the daytime, I... I put those things away. But some people, they have the audacity to carouse in the daytime. And, and, they're, and they're part of the church. They come into the church, they're part of the church, but they're not real. As he says here, they're spots and they're blemishes. They're like cancers in the church. They're spots on the church. I mean, what when you picture the church, you picture the church as this pure white uh, living creature, not, without any spot, without any blemish. They are the spots. They are the blemishes. If you're here today and you're not born again and you know it, I'm glad you're here. And I hope you hear the gospel and I hope you receive Jesus Christ and I hope you get saved and I hope God makes you perfectly righteous and clean and white as linen. I hope that happens. But if you're here today and you think you're a Christian and you're not really a Christian, 
and, 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 you know, you can look at all of these things that we're going at, going over and you can figure out whether or not you are or not. But if you aren't, you know what you really are? You're a spot and blemish on the church. And, and, and it shows up. I mean, I, I'm not going to name any of the spots and blemishes we have in here, but I'm joking, we don't have any here. But, but it shows up. You know. The sp- I mean, it shows up. It's easy to figure out. And so... Uh, they, it, it says they, they, they carouse in the daytime. Uh, their spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions, deceiving themselves, deceiving others while they feast with you. I mean, they'll, they partake of the Lord's Supper. They'll come to your home and eat with you. They'll be, uh, you know, a big part of your church. And yet they're pigs in a soup. They're false Christians. Then in verse number 14, he keeps on describing them. He says, having eyes full of adultery. Eyes full of adultery. And they cannot cease from sin. They just can't keep doing it because they don't have any power to cease from sin. They don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They're not, and they're not walking by the Spirit. They're walking by their unclean nature, by the flesh. And, they have, and, and you can spot them and, and because they have eyes full of adultery. Now, that would, you, you could take that and, and, and I guess in a uh, one way look at it as they aren't satisfied with their wives and their eyes are always wondering and they're looking for other women or vice versa. The woman's looking for another man and they're always, their eyes are full of adultery and I think that might apply there. But what he's talking about here, he's talking about spiritual adultery. Their eyes aren't on the Lord. Their eyes are on the world. I mean, they want the things of the world much more than they want the things of the Lord. And so their, their eyes are constantly not in the word of God, uh, not in the things of God, not in prayer. Their spiritual eyes are not on the Lord. Their eyes are on the world. And they're becoming more and more worldly all the time. So they have eyes full of adultery and they cannot cease from sin. You keep looking at something, you're going to eventually sin and you, it's, sin's going to be conceived. And, if, and, if, and if, if, if you're enticed by those things and your eyes are constantly on things of this world, then, then uh, uh, you, you, you can't help but sin. And they entice unstable souls. You know, nothing makes me matter. Than to, and I can't listen to these guys. I don't know why I ever listen to them. In fact, I don't get them on cable anymore, so I don't have to listen to them. But I used to listen to some of those guys on cable and, and they're multi-millionaires, and they entice unstable souls, really unsaved people who really are looking for help, and they see these people promise them all sorts of goodies if they'll just give to their ministry, and so they entice these unstable souls to give to them, and, and uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know anything more terrible than to, 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 to use religion to steal from other people. I mean, that's terrible. And they have a heart trained in covetous practices, and they are accursed children. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. The word trained there is the Greek word, and I don't like to use Greek words very often, but this one's interesting. It's gymnazo, from which we get our word gym. In other words, they, when they go to the gym... The spiritual gym, their spiritual gym is the world. They work out in the world. They work out in the things of the world. 
That's where they live their life. That's where they exercise uh, their, their souls. And they exercise their souls in the world. And so instead of becoming more and more spiritual, they become more and more worldly. Now, there's, there's a danger there for all of us. If, if we exercise our souls in the world, and that's where we spend most of our time, and when I speak of the world, I'm speaking of this fallen world system. I'm speaking of this world that's against God. I'm not speaking of the good things in the world, the good gifts that God's given us. But when we exercise ourselves in the things of this fallen system, this fallen world, then we're going to become more and more uh, carnal and less and less spiritual. And to be carnal, Paul says, is death. And so we're killing ourselves when we do that. We're killing relationships. We're killing our relationships with one another. We're killing our relationship with God. Uh, We're killing our health. We're killing our minds. We're killing our souls. And so when we work out in the world, uh, it leads to death. And then he says they are accursed children. Literally, they are the children of the curse. They are still the children of the curse. The same curse that had Satan thrown out of uh, heaven, the same curse that had Adam and Eve thrown out of the Garden of Eden, they're still children of that curse. And if you ch- die a child of the curse, then where are you going to end up? You're going to end up in hell. Great news today, right? We're going to head there. Hang on. And they have forsaken the right way, and they have gone astray. What's the right way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. When I hear a preacher, a pastor, or a so-called Christian say that there are other ways to heaven, that really bothers me. I immediately write them off as a false Christian. Because let me tell you something, when you say there's another way to heaven other than that through that cross, then you have forsaken the way. And if you've forsaken the way, then you're a false teacher and you're a false Christian. I, I mean, I'm not saying that judgmentally. I'm saying that in love. Man, you better straighten that out because if you're born again, if you're a born again believer, you know that there is only one way to heaven. And that, and only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's no other way except through Jesus Christ. And they've gone astray. They've gone astray, away from the way, and uh, they, their uh, fate is sealed. And you're going to get into that here a little bit later. Now, let's go back to, where did I leave off here? Verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. Now we're going to get into something really interesting here. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity by a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, he's called a prophet. 
But he's definitely a false prophet. I'm going to show you that here in just a minute. I want to spend just a few minutes talking about this guy Balaam because by looking at Balaam, we can see the false way, the way that, that uh, you follow if you've gone astray. It's not the way. Balaam's a prime example and a very good illustration of, of a false prophet. You remember the story of Balaam, right? I mean, most of you remember. It's found over in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 and 23. Balaam was a prophet, and he was living down in Midian. And that's interesting to me, because where had Moses lived for 40 years? He had lived down in Midian. And so I, I imagine he was an acquaintance in some form or fashion with the great prophet Moses. And I think he thought being a prophet might be a good idea, and he became a prophet. And people look at prophets sometimes, they say, wow, I'd like to be a prophet, so I'm going to be a prophet. Is that how you become a prophet? No, God makes you a prophet. But apparently he became a pretty famous prophet. And Moses and the children of Israel, Israel were marching through the land of Moab. And the king of Moab was the mightiest king at that time. His name was Balak. And uh, uh, they were marching through his territory, and he wanted to go to war with them. He wanted to, he wanted to battle with them. But first he wanted to curse them so he'd be sure that he won the battle. And he had heard about this prophet Balaam. And so he sent some of his mighty princes, very prominent men, very important men, and he sent them to the land of Midian, and he sought to hire Balaam to do his cursing for him. And so Balaam, he, they told Balaam, look, man, you want a really good position in, the, in Moab, in Balak's kingdom? You'll be a very important person. Uh, we're going to give you lots of money, a nice home. Uh, you're going to be in really good shape. And, and uh, Balaam said, hey, that sounds good. I'll curse Israel. And so he made the decision to curse Israel. And that night, God came to him in a dream. What do you think God told him? Go and curse Israel, right? You better not curse Israel. If you curse Israel, you will die. Let me stop here for just a minute. Here's another thing that really bothers me. When I hear a false prophet, and they are false prophets, if they say this or they do this, when I hear a false prophet, curse Israel, I immediately say, I'm done with them. I will have nothing else to do with them. Now, how do they curse Israel today? Well, there's a new movement called the BDS movement. Boycott, divest, and uh, sanction. And, and a lot of our denominations are, and leaders of our denominations and here in America are leaders of that movement. And they want to be done, for the United States to be done with the nation of Israel. In their mind, God is done with the nation of Israel. And so they believe that the Israel, Israelites do not have a right to the land of Palestine and that it belongs to the Palestinians and that the Israelites should be kicked out. They're totally against the Zionist movement. Now, is that biblical? No, that's not biblical. I don't know what Bible they're reading. God is not done with the nation of Israel. We were in the book of Hosea in chapter number one a few weeks back, and in Hosea he talks about in the millennium how God will bring the two kingdoms together, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they will exist in the millennium. Now, every time we get into this issue, I try to take you to a different passage and show you, uh, prove to you my point, but, but go with me this time to, to Psalms. And we'll go to Psalms 105. 
Psalms right in the middle of your Bible, Psalms 105. And, and look with me down in verse number 7. He is Jehovah, the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant for a while, forever. Let me tell you what, when God makes a covenant, a forever covenant, guess how long it's for? It's forever. God's made some unconditional covenants, and they are forever. If they aren't forever, and God can change his mind, like these people, these false prophets today claim he has done, if God can change his mind, then what keeps him from changing his mind about you and I? I mean, when he saved me back in August the 23rd, 1989, he saved me once and for all. And if he can change his mind and say, well, you know, I saved George, but man, after seeing him, you know, these last uh, 27 years since he's been saved, I don't think I'm going to stick to that promise. Thank goodness he's sticking to his promise. Thank goodness when he saved me, he saved me forever. And, and listen to what he says. He says, my, he says, he remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. And a thousand generations is, a, is just a way of saying forever. The covenant which he made with Abraham. And you can go back and look at that covenant in Genesis. And that's a, that's a covenant, a spiritual covenant, but it's also a physical covenant about the land. And and his oath to Isaac, and he confirmed it to Jacob for a statue. To Israel for how long? An everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan. Now, is that a spiritual covenant there? No, that is a, a geographical covenant. He promises them the land for how long? Forever. Who owns that land? Well, God owns the land. And who's he giving it to? Israel, how long has he given it to him for? Forever. And, and as an allotment for your inheritance. And so that's a forever covenant. So all of these pastors out there that are teaching that somehow God has thrown Israel under the bus, they are false prophets. And so stay away from them. And there's a lot of them out there. You get it, when you hear this word dispensationalism, there, I believe in dispensations in the Bible, but boy, when somebody harps on that dispensationalism as if God somehow breaks his covenants in different dispensations, stay as far away from that as you possibly can get. All right, now, back to the story of Balaam. Where did we leave off? What was Balaam doing when we left off? Anyway, Balaam got up that morning. He had had that dream, and the Lord had said, don't go. You better not go. And Balaam was a smart guy, so he said, I'm not going to go. So he told those princes, y'all go back home. Y'all go back home because the Lord's told me I can't curse Israel. So they went back home and they told uh, Balaam. And Balaam said, go back to him again. And this time we're going to send the most prominent princes in all of the kingdom. And we're going to offer him even more stuff and more rewards and a greater position. And go back and offer, offer that to him and see if he'll curse the nation of Israel. So they went back to Balaam, and they offered him all this stuff, and Balaam said, well, let me pray about it. Let me pray about it. So he 
decided that that was the thing to do, and uh, he prayed the Lord, prayed to the Lord, and asked the Lord to give him permission to go. And you know what the Lord did? He gave him permission to go. I mean, that is almost shocking to me. The Lord had told him no, but then he gave him permission to go. Another lesson, great lesson right here. When God tells you no, you better take that as a, as a loving father telling you no. And don't badger the Lord because you want something really bad that the Lord's told you he doesn't want to give you. Because you know what he very well might do? Even though he sees in the future that this will be harmful to you, you know what he very well might do? He might give it to you. Why does he give it to you? So you'll learn your lesson. And so he lets Balaam go. I'm really surprised at that, but he lets Balaam go. So Balaam gets up and he goes with these princes and he's heading to the land of Moab. And the angel of the Lord appears with a sword in his hand. You talk about a scary sight. I mean, again, if, if, if Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, by the way, is that's a theophany. That is none other than Jesus Christ. If the angel of the Lord appeared in this room right now with a sword in his hand, we would empty out really quick, or those that didn't pass out first. But he appears. But Balaam doesn't see him, and the princes don't see him, but the donkey sees him. The, the dumb, you know what? The dumb donkey sees him. And the donkey is frightened. I would be frightened too. And the donkey starts backing up, and he backs up, and he backs up against a rock, and he crushes Balaam's foot. And, and Balaam is ticked at the donkey. And so he takes his whip and he beats the donkey three times. What's the donkey do? The Lord opens the donkey's mouth. And the donkey says, why have you done this to me uh, this three times? I mean, why have you beat me like this th these three times? Now, you know what? If I were Balaam at that point, I would have passed out when I heard the donkey speak. <laughs> but Balaam talks with the donkey. He, I mean, this guy, is, he's a weird prophet. He talk, talks with a donkey, and he says, because you've troubled me, and I, that's the reason I've beaten you these three times, and if I had a sword, I would kill you right now. That's how mad I am at you. And then the Lord, angel of the Lord appeared, and Balaam saw the angel of the Lord. Here is God in the flesh in all his glory, and he appears with a sword in his hand. And... This is what he said to Balaam. He said, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse. Your way is evil. You have forsaken the right way and you had better be grateful to your donkey because if she hadn't stopped you, I was going to kill you. Man. You know, Balaam, Balaam should have fallen on his face at that point and said, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, I'm heading back to Midian. I'm out of here. But Balaam does that, gives that classic line, I'm sure you've heard it before, I have sinned. But listen to what he says, for I didn't see you. I've sinned because I didn't see you. In other words, I didn't see you on the way. I would have stopped and turned around if I saw you on the way. He didn't say I, I sinned because my heart is wicked and because my way is perverse. 
He doesn't say that. I've sinned because I love you, Lord, and I was doing something against you and against the apple of your eye, Israel. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, I've sinned because I didn't see you. Now, therefore, if me going to Moab doesn't please you, I will turn back. Hello. Of course it didn't please the Lord. The Lord told you no the first time. He told you he would kill you if you went and you cursed the apple of his eye. You see, you see that Balaam was not repentant here. Balaam, the only reason Balaam was willing to turn back was to save his skin. I mean, not because he loved the Lord and he loved righteousness. No, but he was confronted with his sin and he was afraid of the consequences and now all of a sudden he's ready to turn back. His heart was not changed. He was a false prophet. He was a pig in a suit. But God does something really strange here. He orders Balaam to go to Balak. To go to Balak and do what Balak tells you. And let's see what happens. So he comes back to Balak. He comes back to Balak and he says, man, I don't know if you've told him about the donkey or not, but he said, I'm here to, to do what you asked me to do. So get the picture now. Balak takes Balaam up on a mountain. Up on a mountain and down below in the valley, camped in the valley, is the nation of Israel. Have you ever seen a picture of how they camped? Have you ever seen a, a, They camped in the form of a cross. And it was early in the morning and the campfires were lit. And you know what they saw down there in that valley? They saw this glowing cross. And Balak says, okay, curse Israel. And all of a sudden, God took over the mouth of Balaam. And Balaam blessed Israel. But he said, you can't bless Israel. I didn't bring you up here to bless Israel. What are you doing? And he blessed Israel. So he took him up on another mountaintop. And they looked down, and there's that cross again. And he's really asking him to curse the cross because where was the Messiah going to come from? It was going to come from that nation down there. And he says, curse them. And as soon as Balaam began to speak, he began to bless them again. And he and took him up on a third mountain, and he, and he said, curse them, and he began to bless them again. And he took him up on a fourth mountain, and he says, curse them, and he blessed them again. And you know in that blessing what he did? He pronounced the judgment on all the pagan kings of this earth. He says, not only is Israel going to be blessed, you're going to die. And all these pagan kings in this area are going to die because Israel's going to go into the promised land eventually. And he also gave a prophecy. He says, from that nation down there, the star of Jacob is going to arise the savior of this world. Well, Balak was done with Balaam. He had all he wanted of Balaam, so he sent him home empty-handed. And Balaam goes back to Midian. And he goes back to Midian, and just a short time later, when, the, when God told Israel to attack Midian, Balaam wasn't spared. He was killed by the sword. I mean, the pig in the suit was dead. So we learn a lot of stuff 
about false teachers and false believers from this guy Balaam. I mean, look at him. I mean, he didn't follow the way of the Lord. He didn't follow the way of righteousness. I mean, he was willing to curse the apple of God's eyes, the nation of Israel. He was covetous. He was a prophet for profit. He was in it for fame and fortune, for recognition, for power. I mean, you see people within the church like that. They're in it because they want to be recognized. They're in it because they want money. They want power. They want fame. It's the wrong reason to be in the ministry. He was proud and he was stubborn. When the Lord told him no the first time, he should have closed the book on that case right then and there. And I think most importantly, he had an unrepentant heart. He was only sorry because he had been caught and rebuked for his sin. I've said it before, if you can live in sin and it doesn't vex your soul night and day like it vexed the soul of Lot, then I've got news for you. You're a false believer. Your faith is not real. I don't care what you call yourself. And he received the wages of unrighteousness. Was he saved? I don't think so. I think Balaam was nothing more than a pig in a suit. So what's the lesson here? Watch out for pigs in a suit. Make sure you're not a pig in a suit. That you're not just dressed up for church. Carrying your Bibles and saying all the right things and yet you live the way of Balaam. You know, I hate to end on bad news, so I've got to give you the really good news here. It might be news to you. It's not news to me. But we were all pigs at one time, weren't we? We were all pigs. But God changed us from being a pig to being a new creation in Jesus Christ. And... If he can change me, and let me tell you what, if he can change me, you talk about a pig, I was a pig. If he can change me, he could change you. And at times, some of us are going to head back to the pigsty and we're going to eat the slop. Some of you might be right in the pigsty right now. You might be eating the slop as soon as we leave here. But you know what you're going to do? Because you're not a pig anymore, you're going to leave the pigsty. You're not going to stay there. Because we're not pigs in the suit. We're children of God. We are born again children of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and what you teach us through your word and Father, I thank you for the change that you've made in my life, and I know everyone here says amen to that. Lord, we all were wretched sinners, and you saved us and changed us and blessed us with a new nature and a new life. And Lord, I just...
uh, am so grateful for that, and we're all grateful for that. Father, if we're falling back into that pigsty, show us and get us out. Lord, if there's someone here who's a pig in a suit, who is pretending to be a believer, who really doesn't know you, Lord, I just ask today that you show them the way. There's only one way. You tell us through your word. Jesus tells us. You tell us that you're the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through you. Father, we just thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the new creation. We just thank you for your goodness to us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.